0: Uh, lamentations is where we'll be if you want to turn there but the Christian life is a difficult one you know some of you might hear that statement and be like yep it's pretty hard it's pretty tough some of you might be like "Eh, it hasn't really been hard well you can look to the person next to you and they'll say well just wait because it'll get tough it'll get hard Jesus doesn't call us to an easy life. I mean, he told us pretty explicitly that we'll have trials, we'll have tribulations. There will be hardship. There will be sickness. There's going to be financial trouble. There's going to be death. There's going to be depression. There will be hardship. And sometimes, what we can do is we can unknowingly put our hopes in those things. Put our hopes in the things of the world. This is something that I've been guilty before in my life. We can put our hopes in in our health. You know, sometimes we can put our hopes in our sports teams especially around football playoff seasons. We can put our our hopes in our career. We can put our hopes in our kids. We can put our hopes in our relationships and our marriage. And the problem is, putting our hopes in those things won't satisfy us. They won't satisfy us at all. And when we realize that they don't satisfy us, it leads us into a deep depression and hardship and trials will come because they let us down. Because those things are not God. They weren't intended to satisfy us. So hardship will come. So the question that we must ask ourselves is, when this, when this hardship comes, where are we going to find our hope? Where are we going to find our hope in this world? So we're going to be in the book of Lamentations this morning. Um, it's on page 813 if you want to turn there. And uh, just a little background before we get into the book. It's a very interesting book, Lamentations. So it's written after the events of the Babylonian army besieging Jerusalem in 587 BC. And there were some horrible events that happened that came upon the people of God that were living in Jerusalem at the time. Um, that When the Babylonians broke through the walls, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the palace, they destroyed the walls, and Jerusalem itself. Israel lost everything, lost everything. Everything that made Israel a nation, they lost. And so the hopes that Israel was placing in Jerusalem were all gone. Their hopes were dashed. Their hopes were shattered. So Lamentations is written in response to this big event of destruction on the people of God in the city of Jerusalem. So the destruction was horrible, like I said. So the Babylonians, after after sieging the town, they broke through. They lost their chief city. They lost their capital. They lost their strongest point. And everything that represented the nation of Israel was gone. So the ruling line of David, the, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the temple, even the promised land itself was all taken away from the people of Israel. So we can't even begin to imagine how devastating this loss was for the people of God. We can't even begin to imagine what it would be like for us. So if you think, take for a minute to to think of all the worst possible things that could happen to people. So there's no food, there's no water, so people are starving, people are dying, there's sickness, there's um, people losing their homes, losing their jobs, losing all their means of income, losing their family, everything bad that could happen to people happened in Jerusalem. So all of their hopes are gone. Everything is gone. So Lamentations... It helps people to see God's goodness and God's power in the midst of this suffering. And as we can, we can agree with this, that suffering is a very significant time in someone's life. Suffering is a huge time in someone's life. And many of you can attest to that in some way or another. Because what suffering does is it checks our, our hearts. It refines our hopes. It shows us what we're placing our trust in. And it, ultimately, it shows us who our God is. And so suffering will either harden us before God or make us more pliable in God's hands. So how do you, how do you carry on through suffering? Where will you find hope when suffering comes? Because it's, it's a when. It's only a matter of time before suffering comes. So suffering, it leaves us bare before God. We're devastated and we can only turn to him. So let me just give you a, a quick story about someone I know who, who displayed this very well. Um, he's my, my former youth pastor. His name is Tim West. He's now a, chur- uh, a pastor of a Chinese-speaking, a Chinese-English-speaking church outside of Hartford. And um, so he's a pastor. He preaches every week, right? So he, he does this every week. And he has something called spasmodic dysphonia. Okay, so I don't know if any of you have heard of that before. But ultimately, he lost his voice. And he's a pastor, and so his voice, this, he's been going through this for the past 12 years, and his voice became so bad that he could only whisper. And so now he's, he's learned how to talk by inhaling. So I know you're going to go home and try that when you go home, but he, and I, this is his joke. He says, no, you can try that, but just don't do that when you're eating food, because you know, can have some bad consequences. But so... Here's a man who brought his, he brought his church to the winter retreat with us, and he was talking to, to myself and some other people about how God had to take his voice away so that he could learn how to use his voice in the proper way. And, and so even in light of the tremendous suffering that he's going through, even in light of that, he's realizing that this suffering that he went through caused him to see his sin caused them to see a sin. And this, this is what we see in Lamentations. The people of Israel were able to see their sin in light of the suffering. So let's look at verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 1. We're going to go kind of do some high-level stuff and then land the plane in chapter 3. So Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. Page 813, it says, How deserted lies the city once so full of people. How like a widow she is who once was great among the nations she who was a queen among the provinces has now become a slave so this is this is the author's description of the babylonian siege in jerusalem it's almost it's almost like the headline news you can see it like how deserted is the city once so full of people you know she who was a queen has now become a slave and so the figure here that they're describing is a personified female figure who represents jerusalem so this is the woman that they're describing. But this is a complete shock. The treasures have been taken from the temple. The temple has been violated. The people have no food. The army's been defeated. The walls are broken down. The people are in the hands of the enemy, and this is the news. The city's deserted. The city's empty. The city that was full of people is now gone. It's left. It's empty. So with these awful prospects, what what are the people now called to do? Well, we're going to keep reading in chapter 1, they're called to confess their sins. Look down in verse 18. This is the, the personified woman speaking. Look at what she says. She confesses her sin and her rebellion. She says in verse 18, The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. Look down in verse 20. See, O Lord, how distressed I am, I am in torment within, and my heart is in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. So the people that were in Jerusalem responded to these circumstances by confessing their sins. Confessing their sins. So when we're faced with suffering, how do we begin to deal with our sins? How do we begin to deal with the, the suffering that we go through? Because we should be patient, right? We should we should be humble. We should confess our sins. But if you're anything like me, you're going to want to like you know, fight back and, and try and say, no, I, I got this. I don't, I don't want to acknowledge the pain. We want to fix things. We want to make things go, go away, get better. We want to fix it. We don't want to realize that there's pain and hurt of suffering going on in our hearts and in our lives. We don't want to see our sin. We, we kind of want to live away from that sin. You know, We want to be like, kind of like little... Little bubble boys. We're going to walk around with a bubble around us, living in our comfort. And what suffering does is it pops those bubbles. It pops the bubble of comfort. Because we love our comfort. But God, in His grace, will remove our comforts so that we can trust in Him and not in our comforts. So when suffering comes, don't be hardened and bitter by it, but use that suffering as an opportunity for you to repent. And confess your sins before God. So the next move that we'll make is in chapter 2. Let's look down in chapter 2. So in suffering, we'll be able to see God's hand. We'll see the divine judge. Chapter 2 shows us how desperate the Israelite situation was. They're in the middle of of the judgment of God, but they were never beyond his rule. So look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, how the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought her kingdom, its princes, down to the, earth, down to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, he has cut off every horn of Israel. He has withdrawn his hand at the approach of the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready. Like a foe, he has slain all who were pleasing to the eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of the daughter of Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for the daughter of Judah. So, chapter 2, it continues. It talks of the the calamity that happened in Israel. The gates are broken down, the walls are broken down, the leaders are killed in exile, the government has ended. Hunger has caused children to die in their mother's arms, young and old are dead on the streets. Pretty explicit and graphic. If you want to read it later today. There's false teachers speaking openly. The prophets and priests have been killed in the temple. Complete devastation. And did you notice in chapter 2, there's an interesting twist. The writer recognizes that this work is God's. Look look again in chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. How many times it says the pronouns, he has. Well, who's the he? The Lord. The Lord. So during the tremendous suffering that the Israelites had, they were able to see that God is the ruler and the judge of all things. And they did. Look down in verse 17 of chapter 2. Look what he says. The Lord... Has done what he planned. He has fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. He has overthrown you without pity. He has let the enemy gloat over you. He has exalted the horn of your foes. The Lord has done what he planned. He fulfilled his word. It could have been so easy for the Israelites to blame other people. They could have said, this is, this is the soldiers who left and didn't defend the city. It was their fault. They didn't keep the wall. They could have said it was, it was those guys, those engineers, that failed in building the wall and the gates. You know, they, they failed. They could have said it was, it was the king of Israel that did something to upset the Babylonians. They could have said that it was, it was the Babylonian soldiers and that crazy king, Nebuchadnezzar, that took over our city. They could have said all these things. They could have given blame for all the terrible things that happened to Jerusalem to other people, but they didn't. They looked at the hand of God and they said, the Lord has done what he planned and he has overthrown us. And this is, this is kind of interesting. You know, it's an interesting dynamic that, that the people of Israel would realize that this is God's hand. And yet, so even, even in light of their horrible circumstances that they're dealing with, they're able to see that God is sovereign, that God is the ruler over all things, that God is the divine judge, that God has a plan for this, this earth and this world, and he was working it out even through this suffering, even through this hardship and trial that was coming in Jerusalem. And so for us, let's try and apply that to ourselves. Let's look at this new year. So, I mean, hypothetically, let's say, let's say something happens in our lives that we can look, look upon this lamentations and be like yeah this this is something that god ordained this suffering that happened is something that god put in my life and yet he's still sovereign like if if for some way i hope i'm not speaking prophetically but let's say god takes me out this year you know i car crash cancer whatever god takes me out i die he's still sovereign he's still sovereign he's still the ruler over all things and I still trust him. And so that, that's the heart of the people of Israel in this, in this passage. That they're able to see that God has a plan. That God is in control. That even in the middle of, of all of our sufferings that we go through, God is still the ruler and judge over all things. Over everything. And we know that God is near to us in our earthly sufferings. We know he's near. He's near. God's not this this uninvolved, distant deity. But God knows the numbers of hairs on your head. He knows how to feed the sparrow. And he knows how to work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God knows our pain. God knows your pain. God knows your pain. And has gone through it in Christ. And God has a perfect plan. He's in charge of our lives He's the divine judge, the divine ruler, the divine king. And so we trust him. We trust him. We trust his ways because they're higher than ours. His thoughts are better than ours. As high as the heavens are from the earth. So so higher his thoughts, higher than ours. So God's in charge. We trust him and we pray to him. We pray to God. We pray to the God who's in control over everything on this planet. And this is what the people of Israel did. Let's turn ahead to chapter 5. Chapter 5, the book ends with a prayer. Their prayer is a 22-verse-long prayer in chapter 5. We'll just read the first verse and then a couple others. So chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Remember, O Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. I mean, you can, you can kind of sense that they're crying out to God. They're crying out, look what happened to us. Look and see The disgrace that we're in. Then they continue on with the prayer. And then verses 21 through 22 close it out if you want to turn there. And they they ask in, in supplication, they say, Restore to us yourself, O Lord, that we may return, renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. I love their heart there in verse 21. Look at what they say. Restore to us Restore us to yourself, O Lord. They're not asking for the things of Jerusalem. They're not asking for the temple to come back. They're not asking for the priesthood to come back. They're not asking for the walls to be rebuilt. They're asking to be restored to God. That's so much greater, so much greater than the things that God gives. God himself is greater than the things that God gives. Think about that for a second. Because sometimes in our heart and in our lives, we look upon the good gifts that God gives and worship those things. When in reality, we need to be worshiping the God who gives those gifts. And so their heart is to be restored back to God himself. So what do we do when we suffer? What do we do when there's a big loss or change in our life? We should pray. We should pray. We pray to this God. We pray to this God who can restore all things to himself. What more can we do than pray to God. And we ask God in prayer to help us navigate through the trials, through the temptations, through the hardships that that we go through in suffering. We ask God to to give us understanding through the ordeals that we're facing. We ask God to be with us. And God doesn't grow weary of our prayers. God always hears your prayers. God hears us. He's with us. He's patient with us. And we can boldly approach the throne of grace before God. We can approach the throne of God trusting that he hears us. So we can go to him in prayer. And so many, so many of our situations in life require prayer. Like a lot of times, it's all that we can do is just pray. And when we pray, we thank God for his past faithfulness and his future promises. And in reality, how many of us became Christians because something rocked our world, popped that bubble of comfort, and helped us to see that God is sovereign, that God is the ruler, and that God is the king in our lives. And how, how often does God dash our plans and shatter our hopes so that we could humbly turn to him in desperation and praise? God uses suffering to bring us closer to him. And I know that this is hard to hear in some ways, but he brings us closer to him because this is how he shows us his sovereignty. This is how he shows us that he's God. And so we approach him, through prayer, because we know that God is in control. God is in control. He's got a plan. And this is what gives us hope. This is what gives us hope. So let's turn to chapter 3, turn back to chapter 3, because this, this is the, the climax of the book. So in Hebrew poetry, oftentimes the climax is in the middle. Unlike in English poetry where the climax is often at the end, the middle is where the climax is. And this is chapter 3. It's the longest chapter in the book, and carries the heart of the message of the book. And that message is that God's loving compassion and faithfulness are present even during this cataclysmic destruction of Jerusalem. So let's look at chapter 3. Let's start in in verse uh, 16. We'll give us us some background information. So let's look at verse 16 of chapter 3. It says, He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I've been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction, my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. Well, I remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. So the writer writes these things as he's weeping. Look, look down in verses 16 to 20 again. You can see the pain and suffering that he's going through. He's broken my teeth with gravel. It's like he has rocks for breakfast. He's trampled me in the dust. He's without peace. Forgotten what prosperity and happiness is in verse 17. His splendor is gone, his hope in the Lord is gone. But he remembers the love of God, and this is what gives him hope. Verse 21 This I call to mind, therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his passions never fail. Like, did you notice the word in the the the, the word compassions here is plural? And that's because God's compassions are numerous. They're so numerous for God's people. He's overflowing with compassion, overflowing with mercy. The word for love is also plural. Because of God's great loves, we are not consumed. His mercies are new every morning. His love is new every morning. And can't we, don't we kind of notice this? Like, Every time we wake up in the morning, I'm not really a morning person, but when I wake up early, you know, maybe I'll go down to the beach, see the sunrise. Doesn't that give us hope? I don't know if you guys like, go to the beach and see that. I love the beach. I love living here. You, you can go see God's glory. And it's like in the morning, you see, you see there's, there's hope coming. The sun is rising. And I think that's kind of what this passage is, is talking about. There's hope every morning. Every morning. God's mercy is new every morning. And then this is, this is followed by great is your faithfulness. So, so you have God's, God's compassions and God's loves standing parallel with God's faithfulness. And so even in the middle of, of everything that the author is going through, he's able to see that God is faithful. He's able to look back upon how God dealt with Israel through the exodus, through the wilderness, through the establishing the kingdom. He's able to look back and see God's faithfulness to Israel. And God is faithful. And we, we can look back in our lives and look back and see God's faithful hand carrying us, guiding us, sometimes maybe even dragging us through situations in our life. We're able to see that God is faithful, that he's in control. And so the author was actually able to see that the acts of injustice from the Babylonians were acts of justice from God. God's just and righteous character is behind everything that happens to us. And God is good and sovereign even in our pain, even in your pain, even what you're going through right now. But no one no one enjoys painful situations, right? So in, in October... I, I went through a, an incredibly painful physical ailment, and I think Jeremy has talked about this. I heard last week that, or a couple weeks ago, Godwin even talked about it too. It's um, making this round, so I'm going to talk about it too because it's kind of my story, so I'll, I'll claim it. Um, so I, I was playing basketball, and, and somehow I think I stepped on someone's foot or, or whatever. I dislocated my ankle. So if you want to see the picture, you just find me after this. I, for some reason, I enjoy watching people's reaction to this picture, I'm kind of sick, I guess, I don't know. So so my, my ankle's dislocated, and, and honestly, like, let me try and describe it to you. My foot was coming out of the inner ball of my ankle. So like, I was able to see my whole arch. Kind of weird. Um, but it was like a Picasso painting. You know it, It's like there's something wrong there. Um, it was funny like, the EMTs come up and they're like, "Oh, so what happened?" I'm like, "Well, you can look at my foot. Uh, That's what happened. So, in a lot of pain. It looked horrible, really painful. So, I'm in the hospital waiting for this thing to be put back in place, and they try to set it while I'm still awake, okay? So, I got this big old guy, like, holding down my calf, and then this doctor pulling on my foot, and it's not going, right? And I'm like, like, doc, you you got to stop, like, cut it out. Like, this is ridiculous. Can't handle this at all. And, um, and so it was kind of a catch-22 because they couldn't give me more pain meds after they tried to reset it because they were going to put me out. And I guess, like, pain meds weren't working or something. Um, and so I was waiting for the orthopedic surgeon to come in, and um, I had, like, an hour to wait. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is fun. You know, I really want to be here tonight. This, is, this was my plan. I had had this thought, you know, I want to dislocate my ankle and, you know, be in a lot of pain. And so, you know, I had a lot of thoughts, when I'm laying, laying on that bed. And, you know, I would like to say that my thoughts immediately went to think of Jesus, but they didn't. I was like, I was like this is horrible. Like, This is the worst pain that you could ever feel. Um, and all the women that have kids just completely disagreed with what I just said. <laughs> um, but my thoughts eventually went to the pain that Christ felt on the cross, it went to, to the pain that Jesus felt in his hands and feet as the nails were hammered into his hands and feet. It went to the pain from the beatings and lashings that he received from the Roman guards. But even more than the physical pain, because physical pain isn't, isn't that tough. Like, I didn't cry until I started thinking of Jesus. Was the relational pain that God the Father felt, that God the Father turned away from Christ on the cross. Like, think about that for a moment. Jesus is the eternal God. And in that moment, when Jesus is on the cross, gasping for air, suffocating, being crucified, God the Father turns his back. Like, when we go through relational pain, it hurts, right? It hurts. You know, when someone that you love turns your back on you, or, or someone lies to you or something like that, it hurts. Think about the pain that Jesus felt from God the Father turning his back, the, the eternal God turning your back on your son. Like that's, that's the pain that I thought of, that Jesus on the cross felt the full wrath of God, full judgment of sin for people on the cross. This is what Jesus felt. That's where my thoughts went, and I lost it. I remembered Hebrews twelve two. It says look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So I thought of Jesus, like, okay, the pain that I'm going through right now is like nothing compared to what Jesus went through, and Jesus went through that pain with joy. With joy, he went through that pain willingly, offering himself to be the sacrifice of sin for you and for me. This is the gospel. This is the beauty of grace. And it's crazy to think that Jesus died, went through that suffering, went through that pain, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So when we go through pain, we look to to Jesus because he overcame all sin, all suffering, and all pain. So when, when we go through hardships, when we go through trials, it's important for us to look to Jesus. Our eyes are so important. The Bible all, all over the place talks about how our head is looking, your countenance is down, and, and God in his word says, lift up your head, lift up your head. Don't look down to the suffering that you're going through. Like I couldn't think in that moment about, You know, the fact that I would be on crutches, that I would have to go through physical therapy, that I would have to, you know, shower on one leg and all that stuff. I didn't look I didn't have to look there. I looked to Jesus and looked through the details of my suffering. I looked at Christ and said, Jesus went through this on my behalf. This is what gives me hope. This is what gives me hope. Because this this perspective totally changes how we suffer. Because no longer do we do we suffer in in a meaningless way. But now we're able to see that our suffering does have a purpose. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul suffered more than almost anyone. And he said that he was counted worthy to suffer like Christ. Counted worthy to suffer. So in our suffering, we're able to connect with Jesus in a very intimate and deep way. We're able to connect with him in a way that if we didn't suffer, we never would have experienced. And so don't look down into the circumstances of your suffering. Look up to the steadfast love, compassion, and mercy of God. Look to his attributes. Look to his holiness. Look to his glory. Look to his goodness. Look to his sovereignty and look to his love. Because suffering, it it will make you bitter or suffering can be part of God's plan to make you better. And, And suffering is God's way to make us holy. You know, the Bible sometimes talks about the holy fire, connects holiness with fire. You know, is, is fire a fun thing to go through? No. No one likes to get burnt. But in order to be holy, sometimes you need to go through some stuff. And God matures you. God refines your faith. God shows you his grace. God shows you his mercy. And so you look back upon your life and you see those scars and those burns that suffering has caused in your life. Don't look there. Look to the scars that were on Jesus because he's alive and he has he has a great plan for you and so in the depth of the author's anguish he clings to the one truth and that is that is that God is the one that's going to give him hope God is the one that's going to give him hope even no matter what you're going through God is faithful God is faithful so I want to tell you that God has dashed my hopes he'll continue to dash my hopes but he does that so that he'll give me better hopes. And those hopes he'll fulfill. And we can trust that. And so, tell you that, that God will dash your hopes. He'll dash your plan. He'll pop your bubble. But he'll give you better hopes, a better plan. And will give you the ability to trust him in all things. No matter what this world throws at you. So his mercy is great. His love is never ending. Even in the midst of those trials. So let's pray. Father God, we, we are just humbled by your word. God, we're humbled by the grace, the mercy, the love, and the compassion that you have on us. Lord, we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we look to you, Christ, because on the cross, you, you did it all. You took our sin, you took our shame, you took our suffering. And Lord, you rose again on the third day, giving us hope for a new life, giving us hope and purpose, and joy. Lord, we pray that you would increase our joy this morning as we look to you, even in the midst of the sufferings and trials we go through. Lord, be with us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.